Welcome to this week's Rashi Shear, brought to you from the Bet Midrash of Mizrahi in Melbourne, Australia. And this week, the Rashi Shear is still on Zoom because we are under lockdown Mahadrin style here in Melbourne. And we are nevertheless learning Torah. And we are in Bereshit Peruk Yudchet, and we're up to Pasuk Vav. And the story so far is that the angels, in the guise of three men, have visited Abraham. And Abraham has invited them to stay. And he said, I'll get you a little bit of water and I'll get you a piece of bread. But in fact, in Pasuk Vav, he does much more than that. As we read, V'yamaher Abraham, Abraham hurried Ha'ohela to the tent. El Sarah to Sarah, Vayomer, and he said, Mahari, hurry, Shalosh Seim Kemach, Solet, three Seim, that's a measure of Kemach, which means unsifted flour, Solet, which means sifted flour, Lushi, knead them with a K, Vaasi Ugot, and make cakes or loaves. So, Rashi says on the words Kemach Solet. Now, Kemach Solet is a problem because, as I say, it means two different things. Kemach is unsifted flour and Solet is sifted flour. So what does Rashi say? Solet Ugot, the sifted flour, the fine flour, is for the cakes. Kemach Amalin Shal Tabachim. Kemach is for the dough of cooks. Kasot et hakadera to cover the pot, to remove, to draw off the zahuma, which is translated as scum, like the nasty bits of the, of the cooking that you don't want to serve, you want to pull away. So I'm afraid my cooking knowledge is limited, I'm embarrassed to say, but I don't know if many people today use dough to draw off the unwanted bits of whatever they're cooking in the pot, but apparently this was the custom. So says Rashi, Solet and Kemach are two different things used for two different purposes. Now, the, as I've said already, Solet and Kemach are two different things, and yet they are put together as it were as one unit. It cannot mean, Kemach Solet cannot mean the Kemach that comes from Solet, because Solet comes from Kemach. Solet is the flour after you've sifted it, and kemach is the flour before you've sifted it. So you might think it's some sort of smichut, some sort of construct, the kemach of solet, but there isn't such a thing. So we have to rule that out. And therefore, it's two separate things. Now, however, it doesn't say kemach the solet, which would be the logical uh, way of referring to two separate things, kemach and solet. But Rashi understands, had it said kemach and solet, it would have implied that the two were used for the same purpose. Had it said that, which as I say is the more natural structure, it would have read Mahari, Shalosh Seim Kemach Vasolet, Lushiva Asi Ugot. Go and prepare three Seim of Kemach and Solet, different but used together. But it doesn't say Kemach Vasolet, it says Kemach and it says Solet. So because they are not united, in fact, they're juxtaposed, but they're not one thing, therefore Rashi learns they are two different things used for two different purposes. And so he says, Kemach is used for one thing, 
and solet is used for another thing. It's interesting, I noticed that he explains solet first and kemach second. I don't know why, I've just noticed that. Maybe because solet is the ikar and the kemach is the tefel. It's solet is the main thing, which he's actually using to cook the food, and kemach is, a, is used, as he explains, as just a, an, a, a part of the cooking process, but you don't actually eat it because it's used just to cover the pot and then draw away the zuhama. So uh, maybe, I'm just thinking as I speak, that's why he mentioned solet before he explains kemach, even though in the Chomesh they come, kemach followed by solet. Okay, then we go on to Pasuk Vav. Sorry, that was Pasuk Vav. We go on to Pasuk Zion. The El Habakar Ratz Avraham, and to the flock, or the herd, sorry, Abraham ran, and he took Ben Bakar, literally a son of the herd, i.e. a cow, Rach, soft, the tov, and good, El Hanaar, and he gave it to the lad, and he hurried to do it. So Rashi says on the words, Ben Bakar, Rach, the tov, Shalosha parim hayu. There were three parim. There were three cows or bulls, I suppose. In order to serve them, to make, give them to eat three tongues with mustard. Now, Rashi introduces the idea that there were three different cows that were slaughtered and prepared as meat. Uh, the, the, it's not directly clear in the Chumash at all. It comes from the Gemara, and the Gemara learns from it says, Benabakar, Rach, uh, Rach, Vatov. Three descriptions, and the Gemara seems to learn that the Vav on Vatov means that introduces another cow, Vatov, and it was good. And since Vatov introduces another cow, so Rach also introduces another cow. So we can assume that Rashi darshans those words the same way as the Gemara does to get the idea that there were three cows. But when you say there were three cows, then Rashi then has to explain why do you need three cows? Because however hungry these guests were, it's inconceivable that they would have eaten one cow each. One cow would have been plenty for three people. So Rashi says you needed to have three cows because he wanted to serve a part of the cow to each of the men. What part of the cow would that be? What's a unique part of the cow, which would be a one serving? Uh, the answer is the tongue. So Rashi, having said there were three, he wants to explain why there were three. So he says that they served three bachardal in with mustard, which apparently was a particularly uh, nice and fancy way of serving tongues. Then we have the words el hanaar, to the lad. And Rashi says, Zer Yishmael. This is Yishmael. And this is a classic example of Rashi saying, if something is identified with the definitive article, the lad, ha na'ar, it must be someone we've known about already. And Rashi, I think, is pretty consistent. When he comes across something with a definite article, he will identify what it is. If it had just said to a lad, then it's just one of Abraham's servants. But when it says to the lad, it must be somebody that we know of. And there's only one lad who's been identified by name in Abraham's household, namely his son, at that time his only son, Yishmael. In which case we have a problem. 
why does Abraham, who's doing this wonderful mitzvah of chesed, and we know that in general, if you do something personally, it is preferable to do it with your shaliach, with your emissary. So why then does Abraham give this mitzvah away and he give it to someone else to do? So therefore Rashi comes to answer that. And he says, after having said, Rashi, sorry, that Abraham is intending to educate Yishmael in mitzvot. And that's why, that explains why Abraham gave away his mitzvah of chesed, because chinuch is so important, and we know it's so important to Abraham. And in a few pasukim later, we're going to hear in a very profound way that Abraham's mission in life is to teach his children to do the right thing. So here we have Abraham not giving away the mitzvah as if he is too important to do it himself, but on the contrary, he's choosing to give away the mitzvah so that he will educate his son in mitzvot, as Rashi puts it. It also explains, or rather, it, it well, perhaps explains, uh, we, we, well, we have a slight problem. Because once Rashi has said at the beginning of the Pasuk, Ben Bakar Rach Vatov is three different um, uh, cows. Then he says he gave it to uh, the lad, who we now know as Yishmael, La Asot Oto, to do it, singular. So either that refers to the whole mitzvah, or possibly it refers to just one of the cows. And the other cows, Abraham attended to himself. That remains a possibility. And that would fit quite nicely, by the way, that he's got three cows to deal with. He gives one to Yishmael as a chinuch exercise, but he still keeps the other two as his mitzvah. So he's, he's, uh, in, he, he's doing chinuch, and he's doing also chesed himself. Um, and that would be why it says oto. But remember that, because it's going to be relevant um, in the next pasuk as well. Um, okay, I'll just share a little vort, which is not Rashi, but it follows straight on from this Rashi. I heard it years ago um, from Rav uh, Lipper Rabinovitz, who used to live in Manchester and now lives in Shari Chesed. And I just remember this vort, and I'll share it in his name, that the descendants of Yishmael are generally considered to be the Arab people. And one thing we know about Arabs is they're very hospitable. When they uh, meet a, a traveler in the desert, they bring them into their tent and they're very, very makpid, they're very particular about Hachnasat Orchim. A little bit later on, we're going to be introduced uh, in more detail to the character of Lot. And Lot's children were Ammon and Moab. And the thing we know about Ammon and Moab is they did not show hospitality to the Bnei Israel when the Bnei Israel passed by their uh, domains. And that is why um, the people of Ammon and Moab cannot marry into the Jewish people. It's only the men, not the women. That's why Ruth was allowed to, and David and Melech could be born. But basically, they are excluded because they did not show hospitality. And yet, Avraham shows hospitality here, and his descendants through Yishmael learn from him. Lot also risked his life to show hospitality in uh, Sodom to two of the same three angels. And yet his children didn't pick up his trait. So I heard that Reb, the Liver Rabinovitz said that when you look, and we will do a little bit later, at what went on in Saddam, when Lot came to confront the crowd who were baying for the blood of his guests, he closed the door behind him with his family on the inside, and he stood on the outside. In other words, he did not involve his family in the mitzvah. 
But here we see in this very Rashi that Abraham went out of his way to involve his children in the mitzvah of Hachnasat Porachim. And the result is Abraham's descendants follow in his way and practice this mitzvah. Lot's descendants do not. Um, Reb Lippur Rabinovitz was a menahel of a school. Um, and I heard this boy when he spoke of a mitzvah and he always, always found a way to talk about how the children, sorry, how the parents have a responsibility to inculcate the right midot and the right mitzvot into the children. And this was a way of doing that. So I thought that's rather nice and it follows on from this Rashi. Let's move on to Pasuk Zayin. Nope, I keep getting the wrong one, Pasuk Chet. So, and Abraham took chemach, which we normally translate as butter, but Rashi will say it's slightly different, the chalav and milk, uben habakar, and the cow, uh, I keep saying it, bull, asher asa, which he had made, v'yatein lifnehem, and he put it before them, v'hu omed alehem, and he stood by them, or over them, tachata eitz, under the tree, v'yocheilu, and they ate. So Rashi has a few things to say. So first of all, and he didn't bring bread. So why would we think he should have brought bread? Because he gave the flour to his wife in Pasuk Vav with the instruction that she make bread. You can also add that he said in the very beginning, the one thing he said he was going to bring on the menu in Pasuk Hay was Pat Lechem. So between these two, we might be surprised that he didn't bring bread on this occasion. So Rashi says, because at that moment, Sarah started menstruating, which she hadn't before or hadn't probably ever because she was barren and she didn't have a womb. Um, and she was 90 years old. Uh, no, actually she had previously, we'll see that later. But this day she became Nida and therefore the Nitma'et Ha'isa the dough became tameh. So a woman who is in a state of nida is metameh. She passes on the tumor, which she is in a state of, to food which she touches. So um, now the bread, the dough was tameh. So what? You're allowed to eat tameh food. Let's just understand. There's nothing wrong with a person being tameh. That's why I uh, abhor the translation unclean. I'm not very keen on the translation impure. I leave it untranslated as a halachi term, tameh. There's nothing bad, there's nothing negative um, about it. And if food is touched by somebody's tameh, then the food is tameh and so be it. Now, if you are a Kohen and it's your truma, you can't let your truma become tameh. If you are in a state of tumor yourself, you can't go into the bet mikdash. There is a distance between tumor on the one hand and things of kedusha on the other. Tumma is a halachic state which sets up certain separation between the person in that state and Kedusha. And in this case, she is Tameh. She makes the bread Tameh, but you can eat Tameh bread. There's no problem with Abraham. He wasn't a Kohen. It wasn't Truma. There's no problem with eating Tameh bread. However, there always were, indeed, perhaps maybe there are, people who are particular to eat their own food, batahara, in a state of not tuma, but tahara. Even if it is not truma, even if it is not some kadoshim, some sacrificial offerings, some people are particular 
not to eat food which is tame, even though there's no prohibition on it whatsoever. But it's an extra level of khumra that people choose. It's a valid khumra. The Gemara talks about it in a praiseworthy fashion. Um, in fact, in the Gemara's time, there seemed to be two classes of people. There was the Chaveirim and the Amehaaretz, or Amaratzim, as we uh, poorly in our grammar describe them. And what is, the, what is an Amhaaretz? So today an Amhaaretz means somebody who's not very learned. That's not what the Gemara means by an Amhaaretz. An Amhaaretz is someone who's not particular about Tumantara. And a Chaver is somebody who is particular about Tumantara. Uh, and that really was a big divide in Talmudic times between different groups of people. Anyway, all this is by way of introduction. So Abraham doesn't serve the bread which has become Tumay. Why not? So perhaps we can say that Abraham himself was makpid not to eat bread, in, not to have food which was tamay, rather to have all his food in a state of tahara. But he would only feed his guests what he himself would eat. He wasn't going to be machma for himself and makel for his guests. So even though it's kosher, even though there's no prohibition, he took on the level of eating food in a state of tahara, and therefore he's not going to feed his guests with food in a state of tumor. If that's the case, there's a very obvious question. So he's so makpid not to give them food, which is tamay, which is perfectly kosher, and he gives them milk and meat. He gives them chema v'chalav and ben bakar. Now, I'm not going to talk about why he chooses to give them milk and meat, but I am going to talk about the contrast between not giving them bread, which has become tamay, and yes, giving them pasta uh, v'chalav. So a possible answer to this is found in an analysis um, by the Maharal, who says, what does it mean that the Avot kept the Torah before it was given? And in particular, it's already well saying the Avot kept the Torah before it was given, but we know that's not always true. Yaakov, for instance, married two sisters, which is prohibited. Um, and so the Maharal comes up with an explanation that says there's a difference between a positive mitzvah and a negative mitzvah. And without going into the whole story, he says, in the case of Yitzhak and Yaakov, the Avot, Yitzhak and Yaakov, they kept the positive mitzvot, but they didn't keep the negative mitzvot. And that is why it was okay for Yaakov to marry two sisters. That's his answer to that question. Avraham, however, because he was different, and it's the whole part of the philosophy the Maharal builds up, Abraham kept the mitzvot which were positive and the mitzvot which were negative, even before the Torah was given. Basav uh, sorry, however, says to Jess, I forget who, I'm sorry, it's not the Maharal explain this. We're using the principle of the Maharal to explain what's going on here. But we can suggest that even though Abraham kept both the positive and negative mitzvot, when it came to his guests, this is before the Torah was given, he didn't expect his guests to keep negative mitzvot, just like Yaakov married two sisters. The guests could have basabachalav, milk and meat, and that's a negative mitzvah. But the mitzvah to eat your food in a state of tahara, if you're uh, a Kohen or if you're involved with the Bet Mikdash, that is a positive mitzvah. Yes, Abraham kept it as a chumrah, but it's a chumrah based on a positive mitzvah. And therefore, he expected his guests to keep that one as well. So there's a distinction between the positive mitzvah of eating food in a state of tahara and the negative mitzvah of milk and meat together. Milk and meat together seem not to be a problem to serve the guests, but food which was not able to fulfill the mitzvah of being eaten in a state of tahara, that was a problem, and therefore he didn't serve it into the guests. A little bit uh, convoluted there, but it answers a question which I think stands out. 
So remember, going back to where we came in, because it's going to become very relevant uh, very shortly, Sarah um, starts menstruating on that particular moment, and that's why the bread is not served. That is Rashi's answer to what happens in the bread. Continues Rashi on the word chema, shuman hachalav, shakoltin me'al panav. It's the fatty part of the milk that you collect from on top of it. In other words, what we call cream. And Rashi is explaining what the word chema is. And I'd like to suggest, you know, I do this occasionally um, with trepidation, but this is a straightforward Rashi. He's telling you what the word means because it's not a common word at all. I'm not saying uh, Rashi is aware that when it comes to modern Hebrew, we'll use it in a different sense, but we do use it in a different sense. We use it as butter, not cream. Uh, but Rashi here is saying he didn't make butter, which would have taken a very long time to churn the milk and all that. It's the top creamy part of the milk, in other words, cream. And then Rashi says, Uben habaka asher asa. Says Rashi, asher tikain. What's Rashi doing? There's a problem with the word asa. The cow which he had made. Now, how do you make a cow? Now, maybe Abraham Avinu had the Kabbalistic knowledge, um, which also we find some of the Amorayim, the Gemara had, to create ex nihilo, their own creation. But that's not what's going on here. Um, so, Abra Rashi needs to explain what is meant by the word asa, because it can't mean that Abraham made a cow, but rather asher tiken, that he fixed it. He got it ready for serving. We'll see, you know, we'll talk in a moment what that means. But it means something we can understand. He didn't create the cow uh, ex nihilo. He prepared the cow and got it ready for serving. I just noticed that um, we didn't explain the word um, asa on Pasuk Zion. And that's, I'll leave as a question because I don't have an answer. The last few words of Pasuk Zion. He gave it to the lad and he hurried to make it. I translated before as do it to avoid the question. But it's the same question here in the end of Zion, as it has in the middle of Chet, and I'll leave it as Tzorech Ian, we need to work harder to understand why Rashi explains it in Pasuk Chet and doesn't explain it in Pasuk Zion. Now, there's something else to explain about the word Tikein. Um, it doesn't say the word Levashel, that uh, Abraham had uh, cooked it, or something like that, but Tikein means to fix it. Now, we can read this in one of two ways. It could mean that Abraham Tikain covers all the um, uh, work that you have to do on the cow, from the moment you take a live cow until the end of the process where you produce a piece of meat. Tikain could mean all of that. Aye, but Yishmael did that. We know that in Pasuk Zion, he gave it to Yishmael to do. So how can we resolve that? One of two ways, and then there'll be a third way. Either when it says Abraham Tikain, Abraham fixed it, that means Abraham and his staff. Um, I'm often, just to, to deviate just a little bit, I'm often uh, bemused when we talk about King Herod, he built this and he built that and he built the other. I don't think Herod, Herod ever put one brick on top of another brick in his life, but his people built it and we ascribe it to Herod. So Abraham didn't do it personally himself, but his lad, i.e. Yishmael, did it. And Abraham, it's, it's, it's covered as if Abraham did it. That's answer number one. Answer number two is to be focused on the word tikein. As I said, it's not the word lavashel. It's not the word that's lot to uh, roast it. And it could be that 
Ishmael does all the cooking. And Abraham, as we say in the catering, well, I don't, but people say in the catering trade, plated it up. Abraham put it on the plate and put a little bit of sprig of barley in the middle or, or whatever they do, and he made it all look nice. And that is Asheti came to fix up. And then there's a third solution, which goes back to the issue of the three cows and the one cow. So it could be that Abraham prepared, there were three cows. He gave one to Yishmael, which, as I said, is one way of interpreting Pasuk Zion. And when it says he brought to the guests um, the Benabakar Asha Asa, which means Asheti Cain, that's another cow. And it fits with the words. He, he, Rashi says it's Benabakar, a whole cow in the singular, Asha Asa. So it works out very nicely that Yishmael had one and Abraham had two. And one of those that Abraham had was ready and he brought it to the guest and that was the one Asheti Cain. And that leads me very nicely into the next words of Rashi. Because Rashi says, Kama, Kama, Shetikain, Amti, Va'aiti, Kamaichu. Goes into Aramaic, it's quoting the Gemara. Bit by bit that he prepared, he brought and he put it in front of them. So we're learning something about the catering in Abraham's house or in Abraham's tent. When you go for a, to a meal, and the waiter comes and takes your order, and some items that one member of the family, one member of the party has ordered, takes longer to prepare, everyone has to wait. Now, in my case, I find this very frustrating because I like to eat my food, and if my uh, friend's food takes longer to come, as far as I'm concerned, I'd like to start eating, but that's not polite, so I don't, and it's not what's done in the restaurant. In the restaurant, they bring all the plates at the same time. Apparently, Abraham didn't do that. But rather, Abraham, as each bit was ready, kama, kama, shitikain, each one that he prepared, he brought to them and put in front of them. Why does it... May I ask you? Yes, please. Yeah, I just want to ask you a question. It kind of fits with this. I've always wondered about the timing of this. Because if you think about it, slaughtering the calves and salting, soaking, which I assume was done in Avram's house, and then cooking, we're talking about a very long time to do all that, which isn't very polite to your guests. So does it solve the problem also? That's one question of how that worked. The other part is I've often thought, you know, in terms of the, the chema and the chalav, maybe he just gave, I think I learned this years ago, he gave that to them first and then okay. So thank you very much. So let's deal with, with all your points. Um, yes, there's no doubt that uh, preparing a cow from start to finish takes a long time. Well, one of my sons was in yeshiva. Um, they were learning a little bit about shechita and they actually did it. They didn't do shechita, but they watched the shechita. And by the end of the day, they had roast lamb off, after the barbecue. And it was the lamb that they'd seen checked it. So they saw the whole process from beginning to end. And you're right, I don't know exactly, but it must take several hours just the sorting alone takes a number of hours and then everything else must take a considerable period of time. I would guess, and this is only sort of my hunch, that it, the way hospitality works in the desert is these people pass by, they're on a long journey, they've gone all the way, they've come from A, they're passing the tent and they're on their way to B and it's a long, long journey. And when the host of the tent says, please stop and have a rest, he doesn't mean, you know, I'll give you a, a hamburger and you can eat it on your way, fast food, and you'll be out in 20 minutes. It's a proper stay. 
it's a stay probably of the whole afternoon. They came in the heat of the day. And I think the, the picture I get is they stopped for a while and they sat under the tree, maybe they had a shluth. It was a proper, uh, a proper rest stop, not quite overnight, but a proper period of time, which fits with the simple uh, reality of how long it would have taken to prepare the food. The next thing to say is, you're absolutely right, Ruth. One of the answers given as to how they avoided the problem of milk and meat, as opposed to the answer that they didn't, but one of the answers is he served the meat milk first. And that's exactly what it says in Pasuket. And then Uben Habakar. So it could well be that he serves the milk first. They have the milk. They wait however long you have to wait after milk. Some say half an hour, some say an hour. Uh, presumably it wasn't hard cheese, so it wouldn't have to been six hours. And that would explain why they didn't have a problem milk and meat. It still raises the question why Abram serves two on the same table, which just looks a bit funny. But yes, that would be a satisfactory answer. But now getting back to the Rashi, we can see that this Rashi solves at least two problems. Number one is the, order, is the reference to the milk and the cream that comes sort of in the middle. Because in Pasuk Zion, it talks all about preparing the cow. And in Pasuket, it talks about serving the cow, except suddenly something else has come in the middle. Between preparing the cow and serving the cow, he serves the milk and the cream. Why, why, does, he, why does the Torah leave the cow, talk about the milk and the cream, and then come back to the cow? So Rashi's answering that to say whatever was ready first. And the milk doesn't take long to prepare. The cream doesn't take long to prepare. I don't know if he had to milk the cow or if he had some in the equivalent of the fridge. Even if he had to milk the cow, it wouldn't have taken that long to prepare the milk. So that comes first because it's ready first. And that's exactly what Rashi says when it says, Kama, Kama, The second thing to say is going back, and this is the last time we're going to mention it, the question of what's happened to the other two cows. So maybe Rashi is referring to the fact that there are three cows. How do we know that? Because Rashi himself said so. And yet now in Pasuket, he's only serving one cow. What happened to the other two? Rashi answers that by saying, as each one was ready, he brought it to the table. And that fits nicely with what I said about Asher Tiken, this whole thing with Yishmael. If you go with what I said earlier, he gave one cow to Yishmael, he prepared two more, um, which means he doesn't lose the whole mitzvah. And when it comes to serving them, when it comes, he produces the one cow which he'd done, which was ready before the cow which Yishmael was working on, which is why he produces his cow, the one, singular, Asheti Kane, which he had got ready. And says Rashi, he brought them one by one to explain why one cow now and the other two cows apparently wouldn't have come at the same time, but must have come later. Okay. And then it says, and they ate. Says Rashi, Niru It appeared as if they ate. What does it mean it appeared as if they ate? Because unbeknown to Abraham, who until this point has no idea that they are Malachim, and it's been calling them Anashim all the way through. However, Rashi has made clear they are really Malachim. That's how Rashi has referred to them from the very beginning. And we know we don't know all that much about Malachim, but we do know that they don't eat because they are totally non-physical. They do not need food. Uh, so Rashi says, what does it mean they ate? The Pasuk says they ate, but they can't have eaten. 
So it means they looked like they were eating. And then Rashi says, Mikan, from here, Shalo Yeshana Adam Minham Minham. A person should not change from the Minhag. In other words, if you arrive in a place, then assuming it conforms with Halakha, um, some Minhagim don't, but assuming the Minhag conforms with Halakha, that basically the principle is one should adopt the Minhag of the place that one is in. Unless one's own minhag is stricter, uh, we won't get into this whole question. It's a long uh, discussion in Gemara and Sachim about minhag and makom that you've gone to and we've come to. But basically, if you are invited into someone's house, you follow their minhag, at least in this respect. Why does Rashi add those last few words? Why does Rashi say, from here we learn that you do not change from the minhag? Because otherwise, why do we need the word vayachelu at all? Why doesn't it just say, Rashi, Abraham gave them the food? We know what people do with food. They eat it, or maybe they didn't eat it. But the Torah goes out of its way to say they ate it. And from that extra word tells us that even though they were malachim, nevertheless, they were eating food, which malachim don't do. Incidentally, I just want to say that uh, this idea comes from the Gemara, and it says about the reverse situation as well. So this situation is malachim come, as it were, from Shemaim. They go to Avram's house, and they eat food. So which human went to Shamayim? Not Eliyahu, but the other one is Moshe Rabbeinu. He goes up to the top of Harasinai, and as it says in this week's Sedra, in the, uh, no, sorry, uh, yes, Akev, where we talk about Abraham Moshe being up on the uh, mountain to get the first Luchot, to get the second Luchot, and to daven for forgiveness in the middle. During those 40 days, each one of the three lots of 40 days, Lechem lo achalti, lo shatiti. I didn't eat bread and I didn't drink water. And says the Gemara, that is the mirror image of this case. Moshe also didn't change from the minhag. Now that raises another question. The Mephoshim discussed that because there were other reasons why he didn't eat when he's up there on the mountain. But nevertheless, we have this lovely parallel. Moshe is human. He goes up the mountain and he doesn't eat just like Malachim don't eat. The Malachim come down and go to Avraham's tent and they do eat, or rather they appear to eat, because that is the minhag down here on earth. Now we come on to Pasuk Tet. Uh, and this one gets quite involved. Vayomru Elav, they said to him, and Rashi is going to point out, so I will point out, but the word Elav has dots on. And that means it has dots on in the Sefer Torah. Um, and those dots must be written. There are a few words in the Sefer Torah. There's no vowels in the Sefer Torah. There's no musical notes in the Sefer Torah, but occasionally there are dots. And if there are dots, there are dots there for a reason. And we would expect Rashi to tell us the reason why there are dots, as he will. Anyway, they said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, Behold, she is in well, the word she is not there, in the tent. So they asked, her, asked him a question, where is Sarah? And he says, she's in the tent. So what does Rashi say? So Rashi starts by saying about the word love and the dots. Now, kud al eyo, alaf yud vav, sheba love. There are dots on the alaf yud and vav in the word love. Vatanya. And we've learned in a brisa in the Gemara, Rabbi Shimon ben Elazar Omer, Kol makom shehaketav rabba al ha nekuda, 
wherever the writing is bigger than the dots, in other words, more letters are undotted than they are dotted, then you expound the undotted letters. In other words, you remove the dotted letters and you see what you've got left and you make a drasha on that. The Khan and the Kuda Rabah al But here, the dotted letters are greater in number than the undotted letters. We have the word uh, Elav, and three letters are dotted, and one letter is not dotted. And therefore, Ata Doresh Hanakuda. You expound the word as if it's just the dotted letters. And if you look at just the dotted letters, you have the word Aleph Yud above, Eyo. Now, Eyo is the masculine counterpart of Aye. Aye is the next word, which means where is she? So Ayo is where is he? So what we've got to, and Rashi's explained the, what we do with these dots, is we read the word as if it's just the dotted letters, and we have the word Eyo. Says Rashi, Sha'af la sha'alu, that also to Sarah they asked, Ayo, sorry, Ayo, Avraham. Where is Avraham? In other words, the word Elav means to him, but the drasha on the word Eyo means, don't just think they said to Avraham, Aye, Sarah, Ishtecha, but they also, just from these three letters, we have another part of the Pasuk, which is implicit. They also said to Sarah, Ayo, Avraham, where is Avraham? Lamadnu, why do we need to learn all this? Lamadnu, this teaches us, Sheyishal Adam ba'achsanya shalom, that a person should ask his host, Le'ish ala isha, isha al ha'ish. A person should ask their host, the man about the woman and the woman about the man. And that's what these angels did. They asked the woman, where's, or they asked the man, where's his wife? Um, uh, and they asked the wife, where's the husband? And we learned that that's the proper way that you should first with your host. And then it says, Babava Metzia, we have in Baba Metzia, and a little bit like we had, I think, last week or the week before, I said that Rashi doesn't say Tava Acher, he just introduces a new quote, but I've come to the conclusion that he means Tava Acher. When he says Baba Metzia, he's saying, have a look in this particular source, which happens to be Baba Metzia, and you'll find something different. Because there we say, Omrim, they say, Yodim Hayu Malachai Hasharet. They knew, who were they? Malachai Hasharet, ministering angels. Of course, they knew the answer to their question. They knew Sarah Imenu Heichan Haita. They knew where Sarah Imenu was. So why did they ask the question? But to make known that she was Snu'ah, that's why she was in the tent. That's why she didn't come out to join in the company of all these males. And why did they want to point out to Abraham by asking him, where is she, so that he will re recognize her tzniut, in order to make her beloved to her husband. So that's the second approach. The first approach is they ask the husband about the wife, and they ask the wife about the husband, because that's polite. The second approach is not that they ask both about both, but they ask Abraham about Sarah, like the simple Peshat, forget the dots. The shot is they asked Abraham about Sarah. Now, then we have a question. If they were asking a question as if to elicit information, surely they knew the answer. So that's why Rashi says they asked Abraham in order for him to articulate her quality of tzniut, 
to arouse his love for her. And then we have something else, which in some versions of Rashi is in brackets. Amar Rabbi Yossi Bar to send her the koshal bracha. In other words, after they've benched, and they've benched over a kos, over a cup of wine, it's a minhad to invite people to drink from that cup of wine. It's a segula, it's a, <coughs> it's a nice thing to do. And they wanted to share the cup of wine with everyone around. Sarah wasn't there, right, literally, physically with them. So they asked Sarah where Sarah is, so they can send her the cup of wine. Now that last comment, as I say, is in brackets. It doesn't appear in all editions of Rashi. Um, uh, it may well be the words of Rashi, but I think there are two questions about it. Number one, uh, I'll just mention, it's not really a strong question, but it's a little bit anachronistic. Um, we, the Gemara said, we've already mentioned the idea that the Avot kept the mitzvot. Uh, the Gemara says that Abraham kept every mitzvah, even Erev Tavshilin, which is interesting because it's with the Rabbanan, it's only from the rabbis. So uh, we're learning that Abraham preempted what the rabbis were going to say and incorporated that as well. But I would add the idea of benching and benching a la cost on a cup of wine and then sending that cup of wine to the, 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 the Masubin, to the people at the meal, it seems a little bit anachronistic, maybe. But a bigger question is why were they benching? Why were they benching? Why is that a question? Because what do you need in order to bench? What food item do you need in order to bench? Bread. You were going to say that, Sarah? I got that first. Thank you. You need bread. And Rashi has told us there was no bread. So either we can say that Midrashim Cholkim, there are different Midrashim, and they are in dispute. And sometimes Rashi brings one, and sometimes Rashi brings another. If we have time, we'll get to uh, such a conundrum where the Mizrahi explains that's the only explanation. We'll see that soon. Um, so maybe there was bread, maybe there wasn't bread, or maybe uh, we can't have two Rashi's contradicting each other, especially so close together, and maybe this last one about sending the cup of wine after benching is not actually original Rashi. But either way, we have three ways of understanding why they asked Abraham, where is Sarah? And then comes the answer. Abraham says, behold in the tent, Says Rashi, Snoa he, she is Snoa, she is, we translate it as modest. It's not appropriate for her, as I say, to mix with all the men. When all the men, when the visitors are all male, she withdraws. And that is part of Snoa. Snoa doesn't mean you have to hide away, but it refers to a certain particular mode of conduct in a certain situation. Now, why does Rashi have to say she is Snoa? Because according to at least the first two explanations of Rashi, they weren't really asking, where is she? They were asking about her qualities. Certainly according to the second explanation of Rashi, it works perfectly. According to the first explanation of Rashi, not quite so good, but either in the first explanation of Rashi, we still have, they weren't really asking, um, where is she? They were asking to make conversation with the husband about the wife or the wife about the husband. So you could say that this answer doesn't go with the first explanation. That's quite legitimate. We often do that in Rashi. The Rashi might bring more than one explanation in the first part of the Pasuk, and it narrows down to one of the explanations in his comment on the second part of the Pasuk. That could well be what's going on here. So I'll just mention that this answer fits very well with the second explanation. The second explanation was they asked him where she is in order for him to appreciate her quality of sniut. 
So when the Torah says that he replied, what he really meant was the real ikka, the real piece of information that was being learned from that answer was snuahi, was that she is snuah. She has this trait of sniut. According to the first explanation, and it's just making conversation, doesn't necessarily mean that he has to say the real meaning of Hineba Ohel is that she is Snu'ah, but it could be. It could be part of that was his response to the making conversation question of asking the husband, where is the wife? And it doesn't record what the wife said when, according to that first explanation, they also asked the wife, where is the husband? So we can now move on to Pasuk Yud. Uh, as usual, I should invite anyone to make comments and questions uh, because we're, we're tearing through this. We're up to Pasuk uh, Yud this week. And he said, we'll see who he is in a moment. I will surely return to you um, at the living time. It's a comment under the cough, so it's the time, not a time. And behold, a son to Sarah, your wife. And then we say, And Sarah heard at the entrance of the tent, and it was behind him. We'll see what the it and the him are later. So Rashi says, first of all, on the words, um, no, Ke'et has Chaya. He try, is that the same in my other edition? That this Rashi is explaining the words out of order? No, I see it. I don't know what you've got in your books. In one book I've got, it starts with Vayomer Alav, and in one book I've got, it starts with Ke'et Chaya. I think I'll start with Vayomer Alav, because that makes more sense. So on the opening words, um, no, I'm sorry, I've made a mistake. Ugh, I've done it wrong. Uh, shuv Ashuv, that's right. Uh, uh, in this edition, it starts, I think this is more accurate, it starts with Shuvah Shuv. I will surely return. So we will explain that one first. We'll follow this edition of the Rashi. Lo basru hamalach sheyashuv elav, elav shlichuto shel makom amar lo. The malach did not inform him that he personally would return to him, but as in a mystery of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, he said this to him. What's the problem? The problem is very simple. The Malach says, I will return, but he didn't. If we look later on, when Sarah is remembered, Sarah conceives, Sarah has a son, there's no Malach who turns up and says, aha, I've come. I said a while ago, you were going to have a son. Here I am again. That doesn't happen. So what does he mean when he says, shuv ashuv, I will surely return. He's speaking on behalf of HaKadosh Baruch so he means HaKadosh Baruch Hu will return. That's what Rashi is saying. Now, by the way, when Yitzchak is born, it doesn't say that HaKadosh Baruch Hu was there either. But we understand that when it says, Hashem pakad Sarah kasher amar, Hashem remembered Sarah as he had said, and Sarah conceived, and then Sarah had a son, that is Hashem there. Of course, Hashem's there all the time. And when Hashem makes a miracle or even a natural occurrence, which is much longed for and much davened for, that is Hashem being there. But it's certainly not the Malach being there. So when the Malach says, I will surely return, it can't mean the Malach himself. It's Peshlichuto Shal Makom. Kamo. And we have another example of this. The Malach of Hashem said to her, 
I will surely multiply. Who is the Malach of Hashem speaking to her? Rather, who's the her? The her is Hagar. When she ran away, um, the Malach appeared to her and said, I will surely multiply your seed and you'll have many descendants. Again, the Malach on his own, who is only a messenger, hasn't got the power himself to do the multiplying of her descendants. But there the Malach was speaking as a, a mystery of Hashem. So here also, as in a mystery of Hashem, the Malach said to Avraham, I will surely return. Why does Rashi bring the quote from the Hagar Malach? Because there it's more obvious. Because there the Malach is saying, I, the Malach, will do something in the future. I will bring about it, the fulfillment of a prophecy. I will multiply your descendants. Obviously, a Malach doesn't have the authority to say that, doesn't have the ability to say that. So obviously, when a Malach says, I'm going to do something miraculous, or I'm going to do something in the future, that obviously is I as an emissary of Hashem. I know it's, I'm saying this on behalf of Hashem. In our case, you might have thought that a Malach can say, I'm going to pop back. Ka'it chaya, as we'll see soon, means in a year's time. I'm going to pop back in a year's time. A Malach can say, I will come back in a year, because you might think that's something that a Malach can do. In order to make it clear that the Malach's not saying that, he's not saying, I personally, I, the Malach, am going to come back. We compare it to another example where a Malach speaks. In that example, with Hagar, the Malach clearly is saying something prophetic on behalf of Hashem. So here also, he's saying something on behalf of Hashem. Then we have another story in brackets. It's not in every version of Rashi. You may or may not have it in your Chumash about Elisha. Elisha Omar le Shunamit. Elisha said to the Shunamite woman. So the Shunamite woman, who was the woman who gave him wonderful hospitality, she prepared an upstairs room for him with a bed and a table and a lamp, and it was very, very nice. And um, then he said, how can I repay you? And Gehazi, his servant, said, by the way, they haven't got any children, which is the sort of thing that Gehazi would notice. And uh, Elisha uh, said, I will, <coughs> uh, you're going to have a son. I will tell you, because I'm a prophet, that's what I do, that you're going to have a son. And he says, At the, this season, the same lotion as we have in our Pasuk, uh, at a time of living, you will embrace a son. The Tomer, and she said, El Adoni, to uh, my master, don't, don't be deceitful to your servant. And uh, the, the pastor doesn't make clear what, what, what her accusation is. She says to Elisha, you just promised me a son, but, but I don't like the way you promised it. What was wrong? Says Rashi, Those angels who informed Sarah, she didn't inform Abraham, but the way it's reported in the Midrash, in the words of the Shunammite woman, is she says, those angels who gave the good news to Sarah, they said, I will return at this time. But Elisha, you didn't say, I will return and I will see you embracing a son. You just said, you'll have a son. 
So why did the Malachim invest personally and say, I will return, which sounds much more sort of credible than in a sort of a non-specific way, you will have a son. And says the Midrash, which Rashi is quoting, that was the, the complaint of the Shunammite woman against Elisha. That's why she said, al don't be deceitful, because you didn't say like those Malachim did, that you would personally come and see me with the child. So uh, Elisha has to explain to her. I'll go back. Uh, sorry, Amarla Elisha. I'm not going back. Elisha said to her, I'll tell you the answer. I'll tell you why I'm not like, I can't say what those Malachim said. Malachim are eternal. They live and they endure forever. Amru, they can say, I will return. Because they know for sure that they're going to be alive in a year's time, so they can make that promise. I am flesh and blood. Today I'm alive. Tomorrow I might be dead. So whether I'm alive or whether I'm dead, you will have this child, but I can't promise that I will come. So what has this Rashi done? This Rashi, well, he's explained a bit about the Elisha story, um, which we, in a sense, in order to understand our Pasuk, we didn't need. Although you might be a keen reader of Tanakh, Torah, Anuvim, and Keturim, and you might notice that in this case, it says, I will return. And Elisha doesn't say, I will return. And therefore, Rashi has to explain why this Malach did, and Elisha didn't. Um, it also perhaps contradicts the first part of Rashi. The bit about the Malach isn't saying that I personally will return, but Hashem will return. Now, that is not the, uh, that, if that's the case, then Elisha could have said the same thing. Because Elisha could have also said, I'll return, but on behalf of Hashem. Although you might say the relationship between Hashem and a prophet is not the same as the relationship between Hashem and a Malach. A Malach is really an extension of Hashem himself, maybe. That, that, that's where the, uh, uh, the difference breaks down. But sorry, what I really wanted to say was, according to this story with Elisha, it does sound like the original Malach in the time of Abraham and Sarah was saying, I will return. And Elisha apologizes that Elisha can't say, I will return. But it does sound like the Malach is saying, I will return. Whereas Rashi, a few lines above, said the Malach wasn't saying, I will return. The Malach was saying, Hashem will return. And I'm just speaking as if I'm the mouthpiece of Hashem. So what I'm trying to say is, the Elisha story is problematic on two counts. One, why do we need it at all? And number two, um, it contradicts what we've just said about the Malach speaking just as an emissary of Hashem. To which we can say, well, we do sort of need it, as I said, to explain the difference between the Malachim here and Elisha there. And if it contradicts the first comment of Rashi, so be it, sometimes Rashi does do that. Or we can explain, but that's why it's in brackets. It's not actually authentic Rashi. And Rashi didn't actually say that bit. It crept in as a scribal error somewhere later because Rashi wouldn't have said something that's not strictly necessary. And Rashi wouldn't have said something that contradicts what Rashi himself said just before. And uh, we haven't got quite to the next bit, which I wanted to get to, which is the question, which is going to lead to the question of on what date of the year did this all take place? And we will see next week in Yitz Hashem that it's not so clear cut. But we will stop there just before we get to the words Ka'it Chaya in the Rashi. Uh, are there any comments or questions?
looks like there aren't. So I will say stay safe, follow the rules, um, and I look forward to seeing you next week. Thank you. Thanks, Thank everybody. Bye-bye. Thanks, Robert.